G'day, and welcome to episode 105 of the Packethy Podcast. My name is Hayden Thompson, and today I have Paul Bain, who is the founder and tea captain at Just Tea, joining us on the show. Now founded in 2012 and located in Vancouver, BC, Just Tea has been working with the Qatar family and the Nandy Hills community to establish Kenya's first ever artisanal tea cottage factory. Now, Paul goes into quite a lot of detail on the initial startup story of the Just Tea business uh, during the episode, but one incredible point is that the Tea Board of Kenya actually granted Just Tea with one of the first tea processing licenses to actually produce um, a direct-to-farm tea, which in itself is a huge milestone, not only for the industry in Kenya, but for the guys at Just Tea, as you can imagine. Now, most importantly, um, this allows the farmers the opportunity to earn a fair wage for their high-quality crops rather than selling at a fixed rate instead of a commodity style of um, setup and it also um, offers the team at Just Tea uh, the opportunity to sell an extremely high quality uh, tea which is awesome and essentially what a lot of people in the coffee world are doing and obviously it's happening in the tea world now too. Now Just Tea exclusively offer their wide range of stunning whole leaf teas via their online store. Uh, you'll find them on Amazon online and a hell of a lot of retail and food service locations right across Canada and down into the States. However, Paul and the Just Tea team are now offering you all 20% off any online purchase by using the promo code PACKHEAVY20. So definitely head on down to the show notes and click on the link and hook yourself up uh, just in time for Christmas. I definitely recommend it. Now, before we kick off in today's conversation with Paul, if you're new to the podcast, thanks for taking the time to listen in. My name is Hayden Thompson, and as well as chatting with business owners and operators just like Paul about their business, I work for a packaging company located in Vancouver, BC called Food Pack, where we help food paste CBG companies and processors with their packaging and food packaging equipment. Now at Food Pack, we specialize in three specific areas. Um, the first one that I always like to talk about is stock bags, which you could think of as a bit of a turnkey solution to get to market. Uh, we've got hundreds of different sizes and uh, material thicknesses, which offer you know a lot of variety and opportunity to get to market. We also have custom printed bags and films, which is my favorite part of the business and what I do best. I love working with my clients from the very first conversation all the way through to a landed and delivered product. Um, and seeing those bags out on the retail shelf is extremely rewarding for us all. Um, and we also have packaging equipment like Cipramac vacuum chamber machines, Plexpack band sealers and repack tray sealers and thermoformers. Uh, we have a showroom at our food pack HQ where you can um, bring some of your food items along and actually um, run it through the equipment and do some shelf life testing and make sure the, um, you know, what you're about to invest in is a perfect match for not only the output expectations that you have for your business, but also with your budget. So if you're looking to get into the market for the first time or would like me to assess your existing packaging program, definitely head along to the Food Pack website by scrolling down into the show notes and there you'll be able to dig into exactly what we offer in a little bit more detail. And if we tick all of the boxes there, you can get in touch with me directly by emailing me at hayden at thepackheavypodcast.com or even better, pick up the phone and call me on my cell, which is 604-360-6790. I'll answer the phone, we'll have a chat and we'll go from there. Okay, let's get on with the show, episode 105 with Paul Bain. All right, let's do it. Paul, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. In Kenya, they actually say karibu, which is welcome. So, Asante, thank you, karibu. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, mate. It's good to have you on. Uh, you were introduced to me by um, Lindsay O'Donnell from Picant Marketing, who I had on the show. It would probably be about 12 months ago, to be honest, since I had Lindsay on. But she is a huge supporter of this podcast, and she's always, um, you know, getting out there on LinkedIn and uh, helping push the podcast out there. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, Lindsay's wonderful. I've known her for a long time. We've actually both spent time in Kenya um, oh, cool. on different trips, and uh, we've been kept kept in touch. And she's still been involved with Justy, so she's a she's a great person to to know and uh, to be friends with. Awesome, mate. Hey, listen, um, Justy, there's so much that we are going to talk about today, and I'm really looking forward to sort of digging into you know um, the startup story behind the business and the business model that you've got in play today. Um, but before we get started with that, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I grew up uh, right here in, in East Vancouver, actually, born and raised. As local as it gets, eh? Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, I love the city. I've, I really enjoyed uh, being here. Super grateful to live in the country that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, my second home is Kenya. That's the mm. second country I spent the most time in. So uh, I head back and forth from Vancouver to, uh, to Kenya at least once a year, pending COVID restrictions. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. How long do you usually head out there for? 
So at the start, I was out there um, for like a month or two at a time um, in the early days. And now usually we're there for two to three weeks about. Mm. Okay. it's um, So I can imagine like a huge culture um, shift between the two countries. How do you find that? Uh, I, I'm, I've gotten used to it now. At the start, it was, it was very interesting. I did, I did spend some time traveling, you know, to Southeast Asia, to Europe a little bit, uh, Australia when I was mm. younger. And then yep. uh, my first trip to East Africa was while I was doing my undergrad at UBC. Um, so I was doing some exchange with Barcelona, uh, living with um, my now wife, Sally. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, or she went back home and I took a trip down to Uganda. So that was my first experience there. Uh, and it was, it was amazing. Uh, really incredible to see. You know, some of the I was at the time working with charity, uh, charity yeah. organizations. So seeing mm -hmm. some of the impact that, that was happening and then really just kind of lit a spark in me to, to know that I want to spend more time in that region. Didn't know in kind of what capacity at the time, but definitely felt like that was a spot for me. That's cool. I did see that you did your PA in uh, political science and African studies. So it's obviously something that, you know, um, captured you and you're enamored with the country from an early stage. Yeah, exactly. Um, kind of what's uh, what really drove a lot of passion uh, for for starting Just Tea with my family. Um, those those early trips to Kenya and and the region um, mm. and getting to uh, yeah just know tea farmers essentially build those relationships with the the, the partners growing the tea, spending their long hours uh, picking and growing tea gardens um, was something that really uh, was inspiring to me and got me really excited and and really. Uh, lined up with what I was studying at the time mm. at universe, uh, university. Yeah, it seems to be. Did you have any history with tea prior to this as well? No, I get that question all the time. I was more of a coffee drinker and uh, I haven't fully converted. I, I don't feel like you need to be uh, mutually exclusive yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> so some incredible nice coffee espresso. growing in, in Africa, obviously. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Kenya grows some really world-class coffee as well. Mm -hmm. um, not as good as the tea, in my opinion, but I'm a little bit biased there. Uh, <laughs> but I'll drink a nice espresso on the weekend and then uh, matcha during the week. And, and of course, black tea, Kenyan black tea throughout the days to get through the, get through the week at work here. So caffeine is your drug of choice. That's essentially what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I'm saying. It doesn't matter how you get it. your fix. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I really like uh, I really like that energy I get. I, yeah. I find a coffee. The only reason the reason I drink it on the weekend instead of starting my day is I do find it's a little bit too intense for me. Mm. Um, and so I can manage a little bit easier on the weekend. But if I'm trying to focus, uh, I really like that black tea caffeine. You know, a third the amount of caffeine of a cup of coffee. Mm. Great health benefits as well. Just real, more natural. It has the L-theanine in it which is actually like a sedative so it has that balance of the caffeine energy and just that chill kind of focus um, that you get from it mm. so you're completely nerding out on tea at the moment and i love that because i've come from the coffee industry um i'm not sure if you're aware but prior to working at food pack i was the food service sales manager at salt spring coffee and uh, i was managing the uh the salt spring that used to be on main and 27th for a few years back in 2010 2012 that era and uh which is right down the road from where you are right now where your office is That's three blocks away from me mm. yeah yeah, it's pretty cool. So, mate, I'm very familiar with the coffee industry and sort of um, the fact that, you know, there are Q graders out there, which is essentially like a sommelier in the coffee industry. And I did see that you're a certified tea sommelier. So not technically. I'm pretty close. Okay. <laughs> I kind of dropped out. Um, <laughs> I uh, When I first started traveling to Kenya, I wanted to understand tea a bit more because, I, like I said, my background wasn't in tea. I was working at JJB and coffee shops at the time, so I knew a little bit about tea, but a lot of that is really coffee driven. You know, the mm. city is still such a coffee culture here in Vancouver. Um, so I wanted to learn more about tea. So uh, there's Vancouver Community College. They were doing a tea sommelier program. Cool. So I did about half of the courses. And then once I feel like I learned how to taste teas properly and learn the history of tea and everything I needed to start just tea, basically, or to be able to, you know, get things moving and, and fake it till you make it essentially yeah. i uh i said like can continue to learn um by just by just teaching myself and and you know learning from experts in kenya um other people there other tea farmers other tea tasters and uh now I've, i feel like if i were to take the test i, I do okay i don't mm -hmm. know that much about all the regions of the world uh, for tea um but i have a pretty good palate now and i do all the quality tasting and all the blending here so i create all the different flavors um that you can drink from just tea.com and uh i really enjoy that part yeah. of it no doubt. Yeah. You learn to trust your palate after a while. And, you know, even though, um, 
it may not be a flavor profile that you specifically like. You still have still learn to appreciate something for what it is. And, uh, or at least that was my experience with coffee because, you know, I have my specific coffee roast and profiles that I really enjoy and that I could drink every day, but not all coffees, are, you know, for drinking every day, you know, there might be a specific coffee that's really fruity and bright and citrusy, which is amazing to have a small little sip of, but it's not like a two cup kind of coffee, you know? what I mean? So I'm yeah. sure you probably find the same thing with teas as well. Do you? Yeah. So I don't uh, much like what you just said, like the fruitier kind of herbal mm. teas, I don't typically go for, but that's actually the, the trend of the market right now. People are really uh, excited about those kind of bold flavors, um, especially the lower caffeine, caffeine free flavors, uh, which is fantastic. So we have a, a big profile of that kind of offering. Um, but for myself, I'm just more traditional, like a pure cup of just solid black tea, strong, mm. robust, just as it is. I don't need to add anything to it. Um, mm -hmm. In Kenya, I'll definitely drink, you know, that they're milky chai. Mm. It isn't really like a spicy chai. They just call tea chai. That's the word for, for tea in Swahili. Ah, right. Uh, but it's a, it's a nice milky black tea with uh, lots of sugar. I was going to say, <laughs> do they sweeten it? And I can imagine that. They oh, would. yeah. Yeah, because that's how yeah. they drink their coffee as well. Yeah. It's uh, a delightful thing that happens uh, when you're drinking a cup of chai with, at the tea gardens or, or in the tea farmers' homes is if you let your cup of tea sit there for a while on the table, just like if you were to leave a, a bowl of tomato soup. And if you remember when you're little and your bowl of tomato soup sits there, it gets that little film, that like kind of a tomato skin. skin on top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the tea in Kenya from the milk and sugar they add, it will get that same kind of skin wow. that you get to slurp up. But it doesn't sound very nice right now, but it is. I can delicious. imagine it would be good. Yeah. Experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, in Sumatra and in Indonesia, they drink their coffee with like a condensed milk as well, like really sweet. And uh, it's almost like a dessert. Like I couldn't mm -hmm. drink it all day. There's no way about it. Like, but uh, yeah, it would be really nice to sort of indulge um, sort of in drinking a tea like that, I can imagine. Yeah. Exactly. And just like other, like lots of countries that are, that tea is like their main um, mm. beverage of choice. It's it's all about community, right? So yeah. whenever you go to someone's house, they offer you a cup of chai, you got to sit there, you usually spend a lot of time with them just drinking chai. And um, even when we started our, our partnerships in Kenya, it was all around cups of tea. Mm. Um, and it just happened that we're in the tea industry. But even if you're doing something else in Kenya, it would still be around cups of tea. Yep. When you were growing up, did your family drink tea in their household, like in the house that you grew up in? No. Um, so we didn't. Yeah, I didn't have like that kind of classic British tea bag experience or anything. Mm. Uh, it was it was just mostly uh, my parents drank coffee and I was put off of it right away. They let me have a sip of it. And I was like, this tastes like <laughs> garbage water. I'm not into this. <laughs> yeah. And of course, like vegetables or anything else you taste as a kid, it's just nothing's good. Your palate's not ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so no, I, I just, uh, I didn't have any experience of it growing up. So it really was something that was very new to me um, Interesting. when, when I first got into the, to the business here. Yeah. Got you. When I was growing up, my, both of my parents drank tea and my grandparents on both sides were tea drinkers. So there were always cups of tea like being made in our house. And when I think of my grandfather specifically, he would drink his tea with milk and sugar. So even today, if I was to taste it, tea with milk and sugar it would take me straight back to my pa and my nan would actually prepare a thermos and send him off to work with his thermos of uh, tea and yeah it was just something that sort of specifically reminds me of my grandfather it's really amazing how like a flavor or a taste can take you straight back to a memory like that it's cool that mm. is very cool i love mm. that Mate, so just tea, like it sounds to me like, you know, Africa obviously had you in its grips and um, it was something that you knew that you wanted to be, you know, that something it, you knew that it was a country you wanted to be highly involved in. Obviously, you studied the political science, African studies at university. So where did the idea of actually like starting a tea business come from and how did you go about getting it, you know, up and off the ground? Mm -hmm. Um so I guess it, it first started with my father and I, uh, we spent some, we were at the time we were working in Kenya, uh, looking at different kind of charity or aid projects uh, to get involved with. I had done some work in Uganda previously. My dad was already involved with Kenya. So we took a trip there together and we met with different aid organizations and charity groups and just kind of saw the work that was being done and, and some, frankly, some incredible stuff. Um, yeah. But we both realized after being involved a little bit and, and just from our past experiences it was we were getting a little bit um i guess just exhausted or or just tired um and, and discouraged by the projects not being able to uh, be sustainable without the you know of course the donations that were coming in or a, a real leader on the ground that had that belief and could keep it going in the community 
Um, and so when we started talking with tea farmers and, and some of the aid groups connected us with them because they were sponsoring tea gardens with um, or tea farmer tea farming families with like a goat and things like that, um, giving them a goat so they can you know have some some milk and everything. Uh, so when we started talking with the tea farmers, like, you know, goats are great, uh, but we, we have a tea garden. We like to do something with with our tea. Like our, this is what our grandparents did. This is what our, we want to pass on to our children. It's the land we own. And after talking with them and, and hearing essentially their joys and struggles of working with the tea leaves that they grow and pick each day, um, they basically told us we want to we need to do what the factory does. Um, the factory is where all the value added. Uh, comes on the tea leaves. If we can make a tea that's ready to drink for the customers instead of just these green leaves that are growing on a tea tree, um, that's where we'd be able to earn more. And so we said, oh, that's interesting because we kind of were familiar that other countries had that opportunity for farmer direct tea, that farmers were making tea that was ready for customers to, mm -hmm. to buy and drink mm -hmm. and export. Um, and so from talking with them and then returning to Canada, doing a bunch of research and actually sponsoring a, a tea expert in handcrafting tea from Darjeeling, so the most famous tea growing region mm -hmm. in the world in India. Yep. Uh, he came with us to Kenya. Uh, his name is Buddha. He was a delightful gentleman. Um, and so we did some small trainings with different farmers and and just to see if there, it was something that could work and also if it was something that the farmers believed in. Because we didn't want it to be something that we just you know, put forth and, and we didn't have um, people that were really excited about it um, on the ground and believed in it as well. We wanted it to really be a partnership. Um, and so through lots of trial and error, and I'm talking years of this, you know, back and forth trips with uh, with the expert Buddha from Darjeeling. And what are we myself, talking like, uh, you know, two to five years sort of? We're yeah, we're talking to, uh, three years from 2012 to 2015, basically. Okay. Um, uh, lots of trips back and forth. Um, and then uh, we're like, yeah, we're actually onto something here. We, we connected with a wonderful family, uh, the Qatar family, Boaz and his wife, Jamila, and uh, his, his late father, uh, Jacob, and mom, mother, Ruth, and the Nandy Hills community as a whole. Uh, they really got behind it and were excited, and they were tasting their tea for the first time, which is really delightful, because um, mm. all of the teas that they were picking, they would oh, drop they off at the factory, in the factory. Yeah, yeah, the factory would process it, and they'd export it. So they were actually tasting the teas that they grew up. Um, you know, running through the tea gardens with mm. and, and picking the leaves and they actually tasted it for the first time. So it was a really proud moment mm. and really reaffirmed or affirmed with us that this is something that's important, that Kenya didn't have a farmer direct tea option for customers around the world to receive that freshness and that transparency. Mm. Mm -hmm. And the farmers now can earn a much better wage because there's way less middlemen and they're earning all the, the, the factory profits that would happen typically. So prior to the director farmer market that you have sort of um, created there, was it more of like a co-op system that they had in play or? Uh, they kind of call it a co-op system. So Kenya is the largest exporter of black tea in the world. Um, right. But it all goes into those Lipton tea bags, those red Got rose yeah. tea bags. Petley, yeah. um, like that's what it's used for, ground Got up yeah. black tea. So it's like a commodity, um, like just a commodity, commodity grade. Exactly. Got yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's half a million of these farmers and they're all dropping off of these organized, they're called cooperatives, but it's not the co-op that we think where it's just like, mm -hmm. you know, farmers are involved and in, in getting, you know, fair wages and everything. Yeah. It's more of just like, this is how the farmers are organized in, in, in this cooperative mm -hmm. um, to drop off at this one factory. So that's their only outlet for the tea. So right. if they don't go there, then they don't have an option. And so that's where we kind of wanted to come in and present a, another, or where they told us, hey, if we have an opportunity to set up yeah. our own factory together, yeah, um, more locally, more focused on high quality teas, orthodox, mm -hmm. it's called orthodox manufacturing, the whole leaf, instead of ground up into a tea bag, a whole leaf, loose leaf tea that really puts Kenya on the map, not only for the story, but the quality. Because at that time, Kenya mm. was exporting, you know, tons and tons, millions of tons of tea, but um, but it was it was all just more of a, a, a strong cup of tea, but a, not as more nuanced in the flavor profile. Yeah, it's amazing what you can do. Um, like I'm speaking specifically from the coffee um, industry here, but like when you've got something that's considered a commodity grade and it just gets, you know, pulled into the same stream and then sold at sort of the C market rate, like the coffee market rate, you know, there's no real incentive to produce an amazing quality crop or an amazing quality product. But as soon as you, I can imagine, um, put the power back in the farmer's hands and reward them for an amazing crop and amazing quality and you're paying them for that differential like you would see quality go through the roof would be my assumption yeah and 
And it's, you know, at the start, we were really nervous after a couple of years of doing these trips. And mm. we met with the T-Board of Kenya, uh, so the, the, the governing authority for, for how factories are run and how tea gardens work and everything in Kenya. And um, at, when we first met with them, they said, you can't actually do this. It's, it's illegal. You can't set up the factory because of um, competition rules uh, okay. with other factories. You have to be a certain distance away and you have to be able to be big enough to, you know, to to work with a uh, hundred or 50,000 farmers or something in the region. Yeah. Um, so we're talking large scale factories. And um, but then a few days, a few years later, when we presented our teas and they got to see some of the traction we were doing and, and the belief of the farmers, um, they actually changed the Tea Act in Kenya. So they actually wow. rewrote the rules to allow for what they call a cottage industry, a cottage factory. So they, yeah. they called it a cottage because it's just a small scale factory producing higher quality teas, orthodox teas that aren't competing necessarily with the other factories, mm. but just a different approach to putting Kenya on the map for, for a different type of tea um, offering. And so with our support, with the, the with our team, with the Qatar family and, and the farmers in Nandy Hills, they actually changed the laws, the, the, the laws and regulations in Kenya. Um, and so, so we were really excited to help spearhead that. That's incredible. How, like, are you the only business that's involved there at the moment or are there other sort of businesses in there sort of leading the way with you? So we were the we're the first ones, and we're still the the from what I can tell the the only one who's really stuck around for the long term. There's there's small ones coming up now because mm. of the because of the the new TAC regulations. So there are more like small cottage factories, which is what we wanted, right? We wanted mm. to be able to have it so there's more opportunity for other tea farmers to make tea at the farm level and and sell it worldwide. But it's it's really tough, and it's, it takes an investment, you know, to get mm. the machinery to get the quality standards for international shipping and everything um, and to get the market. That's the main one, you know, to find the, the willing buyers year after year. Mm. Um, and so there's no one else that I'm doing this, that I see doing this consistently in Kenya at the the level of relationship that we have with the farmers. And there's definitely a reason why it is. It's a lot of work. It's a, it's a lot of work, but it's, it's something that is just brings so much joy along with, you know, the, the challenges that, that you face every day with trying to uh, keep that consistency. And, and we're actually, we have that commitment, not only just ingrained in just tea, but also we're members of Fair Trade Federation. I saw which that. Is a, yeah. Yeah. It's a North American organization that looks at the company as a whole. So mm. there's only, um, uh, a couple other tea or companies that offer tea, one of them level ground just on mm -hmm. uh, in Victoria, then equal yep. exchange in the States. Um, and that's because a lot of tea companies, they offer fair trade certified teas. Fantastic. That's great. Um, but then they'll offer just regular teas and they'll offer this other tea. And it, it's not, doesn't look at a holistic approach to fair trade, whereas fair trade federation, um, that verification means that the whole offering that Justy presents follows fair trade principles. So mm. um, that's why we only offer teas that have Kenyan ingredients. Um, and that's why all of our store is just so transparent because we want to ensure every product we offer gives that farmer fair wage and customers when they drink it, they they know they can, they, they don't have to look for that fair trade label. They know the whole company, this is what we stand for. That's amazing, mate. You've been at it for a decade now because you launched in 2012 and here we are in 2022. So, you know, you're moving on to 13 years, uh, sorry, 11 years now. And I can imagine, you know, from the spark of the idea to where you are right now, like how far you've come must blow your mind. What were some of the biggest challenges that you were confronted with? Obviously, like you said, that policy and laws were sort of changed and created to allow you to do what you are doing right now. That would have been, like you said, like at, mo at times, probably almost insurmountable. Like I'm sure you probably thought that you may have to sort of shift your business model to sort of um, apply to the laws that were currently standing. But like when you look back, what are some of the biggest hurdles that you've had to get over and how did you get around them? Yeah, um, there's been there's been a number. Uh, the, the first one was just realizing that trying to do, uh, trying to make this tea that's never been made before in Kenya, that was made around the world, but never in Kenya, mm. uh, was going to require uh, an investment in machinery. And we were, we went a bit too slow at the start, I'd say that was a learning for us. Um, it was fun, like we were just making machines out of, you know, cooking pots in Kenya, and just like a rolling table that we'd use like a uh, a cooking pot so it's a roll or, or using our hands so then i actually brought like a room heater from from vancouver to kenya on one of my trips to fabricate this like kind of makeshift dryer to dry the tea mm -hmm. um so we did it all very just uh just macgyver kind of bootstrapped 
yeah. at the beginning, um, which which slowed us down. Actually, now when I look at it, it mm. we would have it would have been better for us, and we would have been able to grow our our um, our community faster here of tea drinkers and also our farmers in Kenya and our impact there if we were to put a bit more investment at the start. But we we just didn't really know um, how to how to make a go of it because there was no example in Kenya. Yeah. Um, there's all these factories just making these, this um, lower quality uh, mass-produced tea. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another big challenge right away was was purple tea, which is super exciting. Um, it's the only country, Kenya's the only country that grows purple tea cultivars. Um, and they're, they have these purple leaves on the bush, so really beautiful. And they have those antioxidants like other purple products mm-hmm. or purple mm-hmm. um, fruits and vegetables like blueberries, pomegranates, beets. purple cabbage. Yeah. yeah, beets, exactly really high in antioxidants, more antioxidants than green tea, and then less than half the caffeine. So we were like, this is a, an amazing product, but getting it to market as a new category of tea was is still a lot of work. We're still mm-hmm. getting more more people to to learn about purple tea and really put Kenya on the map for that um, for that type of cultivar and understanding it and understand why it's important to to drink it, not only for your own health, but also for the benefits of the farmer. Um, so there's yeah there's been a lot around just developing that that customer base here you know it's such a saturated market um it's been tricky um and then just starting a business essentially in Kenya and then starting a business here as well mm. mm-hmm. instead of just getting regular teas from Japan or India or China and developing a brand here like also trying to you know build up this this um like a supply the, chain the capacity in Kenya yeah. the supply chain there yeah. all from scratch it was it was an undertaking. It's a lot of work, um, mm. but it's it's what sets us apart, and it's mm-hmm. what keeps um, customers coming back as they they understand um, the value that it brings, um, and it, it keeps our partnerships in Kenya really strong. Uh, we're mm. still working with the same families ten years later on now, yeah. um, and we're uh, you know we're working with all these spoon carvers now because all the spoons that come with each tin are hand carved there, and we never thought we'd be in the spoon carving business, but that's another thing and. <laughs> impact you know about a hundred different spoon carving families because they're carving spoons year round yeah um so it's been fun to see kind of how it navigates and meanders along along the journey of of starting up a business here mate it's kind of incredible because you know you spent so much time working on the back end and creating the infrastructure to be able to you know produce the product and get it out here and you've got an amazing product but then i'm sure that you at the same time you also had to ensure that there was demand and that there was a market for it so you know um you learn you go to school you learn business or entrepreneurship and they're like you always need to test the market and ensure that there's demand and that you've got a proven concept before you actually go and work on the back end but I feel as if you sort of had to do both in unison. So did you have some sleepless nights? Like how did you go about creating the market or at least building a brand and then getting out and hustling it? Yeah, it was a hustle. Um, at the start to get the buy-in, we uh, we just, we, we launched with a crowdfunding campaign yeah. and then um, it, we didn't really hit our goal. So we're like, let's just do another one. <laughs> so we did a second crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. At that time uh, we did, we were a bit more organized and we had a bit of a better offering. And so from those two and, and developing the, that community, um, we're like, okay, this is coming along. Let's see if we can start selling a little bit wholesale. We had a, you know, a fledgling website at that time, just doing very little sales, but we had a bit of um, cash and, and a bit of community from those two crowdfunding campaigns. And we're like, let's let's continue on from this. So mm-hmm. um, at the start, it was more just like, hey, I'm just on the phone. I'm, I'm driving around trying to just get people to try these teas, these new teas that are that I felt were for completely unique to the world market um, and had a great story. And so it's just a matter of getting people to taste them. And uh, and we did that for many years. Um, we're talking about, yeah, a good few, three to four years. I was just doing all the sales um, myself and just calling up different tea shops and cafes we started with. And then we quickly pivoted to grocery stores. Mm. Um, and that led our packaging to go through all sorts of iterations to get something that um, not only um, just highlighted the tea well and the story, but also just was easier to package. Because at the beginning, we were bringing fabric back from Kenya. Then my mom was cutting the fabric into strips and we were modge podging it onto the tin with glue. Wow. And uh, it was just a very beautiful, you know, handcrafted product, just like the tea. That's what we want to, to, yeah. um, to illustrate there. But uh, just we wasn't scalable. Up, right? we, got, yeah. we got listed in Whole Foods and, <laughs> and that was the end of it, right? And, you know, they ordered a hundred tins. We're like, oh, we need to have a volunteer night. No, we need to have a bunch of volunteer nights now to do all the, this packaging, which yeah. we did. Yeah. Uh, and it was fun. 
Yeah. Um, but uh, it's definitely uh, more of an untraditional way of, of launching a business. Um, yeah. yeah. Dude, so did you have a vision of like, you know, direct to consumer sales being the vast majority of the where the business would come from? Or did you sort of have a vision of it being sort of like a, uh, you know, you'd have a, a retail location or sort of like, what was the initial thought? The initial thought was that we wanted to keep our focus on the quality of the tea and the freshness for the customer and that yeah. experience and then and then the impact in Kenya. And so with knowing that we knew we didn't want to do a lot of the operations. Mm. And so we quickly from and also from those volunteer nights um, with with wrapping the tins, we quickly like, you know, we, we need to move this out of our office, get a get a partner locally here to do the packaging um to do the warehousing to do the blending we'll still come up with the blends and the flavors but they'll actually do all the blending and their food safe certified factory and everything yeah. um so we want to take out essentially the middle of the business we want to focus on the the, the farmer and the, the end consumer um so that allowed us to really understand that direction um and then as far as like online versus wholesale and everything that just we just kind of rolled with it and pivoted as we need to looking back now it would have been nicer to have a focused plan but this is the first business i ever started mm -hmm. and then my father who's uh, been a part of justy since the very beginning now works more of a consultant mentorship role um so he was this was his first food business as well so even though he's a, a seasoned entrepreneur it was really fun for us both to jump into this mm -hmm. and to explore the best path to you know develop that following that community that those sales um we tried a bit online but didn't really invest too much now or into it at the beginning we tried just selling to tea shops and cafes and quickly realized that they're only going to buy a small amount at the very beginning so mm -hmm. that's when we went to grocery mm -hmm. and then now we've we shifted also more into looking at more gift stores and those lifestyle stores mm. um, because they really like that uniqueness of the product um, and everything. And it's actually positioned us into a tricky spot because now we have to figure out how to get back or capture more of the grocery market because the grocery industry, the prices have come down so much that it's really tricky to compete with, you know, the fair trade values that we have and mm. the, the unique packaging and everything, the spoon that comes on the tins. Mm -hmm. We need to look, I'm, I'm reviewing, I'm looking right now at some new packaging that we're testing, that we're going to be testing on grocery stores. Um, that is just a bit lower price point, amazing tea, but taking away some of those extra benefits or some of those extra packaging. Bells and whistles. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Dude, it's amazing how quickly your margin can get eroded, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah dude. <laughs> Especially um, when you realize you can't do it all yourself, right? At I the know. beginning where you're not paying yourself a salary, you're just yeah. making a go of it. And then also yeah. like, okay, I have to actually plan what's it going to look like two years from now when i have a 3pl fulfillment center a co-packer yeah. and everything yeah. else warehouse storage you name yeah. it yeah yeah how big's the team we're still pretty lean um because we don't do the middle of the business so we have uh we still have a local partner here that does all of our warehouse shipping packaging and everything um you know that's they probably have about 30 people on their team um, that we contract with and then but but in-house here it's myself it's my uh, colleague russ who's been with us from the start we mm -hmm. first connected tree planting in northern bc oh cool um spent a lot of time working together there uh, so he does all of the operations you know product procurement and everything um i still focus on brand development sales marketing and all of that relationship and then i have a, a wonderful um sales admin person shanice here and so there's three of us yeah uh, my wife still is involved with helping with some package design as long with another designer locally here heather um so yeah three three people essentially four people i guess i have a marketing person i hired my first marketing person this year oh, congratulations. So someone to help me with doing some of the, the marketing <laughs> yeah. so that's daniel um and so yeah just under five people still dude it's incredible um you know, a lot of people start businesses and they scale them and then they sell them and they're serial entrepreneurs and that's what they do. But I can imagine that this business, because it's so close to you and you're paving the way sort of in opening up markets and helping so many people back at origin, that it's going to be really hard, if almost impossible, or you may not even want to, to let go of this business one day. Yeah. Um, it's uh when my mother-in-law lives in mexico and whenever we go down to visit her she always asks me she's like so when are you gonna move on to something else and and up until like this year i was like i i, I don't think i'm ever don't going to. to but then this yeah. year i started to think about I was like okay i don't know if i'd ever move on but i wonder what else we could potential other products we mm. could offer that mm. are that follow the same kind of ethos mm -hmm. um that same kind of fair trade values and everything. So that's got me interested more because before cool. I was just always focused on tea, but yeah. then I'm looking at like, okay, but we named the 
brand just T. It's going to be a bit interesting here to market something else. So, um, but no, it, it never we never got into it to, to for a quick sell or whatever um, to get in and get out. Uh, this yeah. is something that that we believe in, and it, but I I do I would like to set it up though so it has the structure that um, if something were to happen to myself and I wasn't mm-hmm. involved, that someone could take it over because mm-hmm. it is so important of the, the relationships that we have in Kenya. So we are building up those those structures that it isn't it isn't me or or my dad or my colleague Russ or anyone mm-hmm. that's you know the the main person or the the, the reason the brand exists. Mm-hmm. It has those systems in place. It has that those relationships in place that are formalized that. Um, someone else could take over because it is yeah. really important to impact in Kenya and also yeah. the 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 tea that people are getting that are, are now in their rituals every every day that they drink. Mm, that's a good point. You mentioned the name Just Tea. It's a beautiful name and it makes so much sense when you look at it written down on paper like Just Tea. And uh, where did the name come from? Was it something that you know you were mulling around and it just sort of came to you one day, or did you have a whole host of names and you sort of like had to go with one at the last minute, or how did that come around? Uh, so just T, it uh, it was pitched by my dad. I, I I remember the day like it was the other day. Um, yeah, ten years ago, it was pitched by my dad to there at the time. There were a few other volunteers involved mostly family members. And he's like, mm-hmm. I think we should call Just Tea. And everyone should immediately is like, no, that's no good. What is that even? And he's like, it's, yeah. it's, that's for justice, tea for justice. And we're like, no, that's that's dumb. <laughs> we just were not into it. <laughs> and then he's like, okay, I've done this before. I know what it takes to name a brand. You try to come up with a better name. <laughs> so we uh, we spent you know a few days and all of us were like, yeah, it's actually pretty good. There's no way we could come up with anything better. We put it up on the while. board. We stopped yeah. there for a while. Then our co- my cousin actually did the logo for us, uh, uh, or my wife did it, and then my cousin adjusted it to make it just a bit more flowy. And uh, and I think it's it's perfect. It, it really speaks to the brand, who it is. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, I definitely couldn't have come up with a better name. So props to my dad for that one. That's cool. Uh, you've mentioned your dad a few times and that he'd, he's been in business um, for years. What, what's he come from? What industry? comes from the bicycle industry, actually. So he oh, was wow. uh, the founder of Rocky Mountain Bikes. Um, oh, wow. Really, uh, Up at Whistler. Brand. Uh, so started in Vancouver. Um, really? Okay. The name came from flying over the Rockies uh, from Alberta to, to BC one day, looking cool. out the, the window of the airplane that he was in. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so he brought the first mountain bikes to Canada um and developed that brand back in what was it the 80s i guess um wow. and he grew up his 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 dad was uh involved with a bike shop locally here in vancouver okay so that's kind of his background so uh yeah he and then and then after that he was doing already some some smaller you know working with some other small businesses and then when when we started chatting more and i was graduating and we started both doing work in Africa, he's like, there, there, there must be something here that we can work on together. That'd be fun. And uh, it has been really fun. And he's been just the most incredible mentor that I could have asked for. Mm. Um, wonderful, wonderful man. What are some of the most memorable insights or sort of uh, messages that he's handed down to you that you'll hand on to somebody next, like one day um, when giving you entrepreneurial advice? Oh, so, so one thing that he's done very well is just the transition. Um, so obviously at the start, like I was just very green, uh, never didn't even think I was going to get into business. I, that's not what I was studying at university. Mm-hmm. Um, but he helped um, me be inspired and, and to learn uh, basically everything I know now. Um, and so he taught me early on um, about uh the value of reading, obviously, like, so I've read lots of business books. I've taken a couple of business courses, but I find the most value just, uh, just from reading different books, mostly actually it's audio books. I don't read them. Mm. Typically I listen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what I was going to say is, is early on, he, he let me know he's very transparent in how he wants the business to work. He wanted it to transition to myself and my, my, and my wife, um, and our young family. Um, and he wanted to be able to step back from it. Um, and so he set up, uh, ways for for the equity of shares and everything to transfer over, and uh, and it was very clear, and 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 it's happened, and it it was very clean. And I have other friends, you know, who have worked with their their, their moms or dads, and that gets very sticky later on. So if I'm ever going to transfer this business, whatever it is, to a family member or to to someone else, I'm just trying to think through how it's all going to go, and and that was a really valuable thing. That's just one of the many things I can think of right now. That's cool. So clear communication, setting expectations early and making sure everybody has a really good understanding of, you know, the direction that you're all moving in is essentially what you're saying. 
Yeah, and whether it is with you know actually like passing along shares for a business, or mm. it's um, our, our work in Kenya and the mm. expectations there, like mm. we had to get um, our our commitment was 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 there from the beginning with farmers there, but we need that commitment for them from them too because we knew there wasn't going to be a lot of cash flow for both of us, mm. and so um, they were super tenacious and they believed in it enough, and they weren't you know they weren't earning very much at the beginning. Um, but, but when, when we got through with it, we knew it was going to provide a lot of value and it still has a long ways to go for sure. Mm. Um, but there still is that belief that, and that core team is still there in Kenya, just like it is here. Uh, I was back there in June and it was just wonderful, you know, to see everybody. I hadn't been there for a couple of years because of COVID. Mm. Um, so I brought everyone, you know, their, their tins, their new tins, cause we feature all the different partners that we work with there. So, uh, so a bunch of them hadn't seen their their tins yet in person because um, I had taken the photos before and sent them to them and they approved the product, but they didn't get to see them yet. So I gave them their tins of tea and they were really excited and showed it to their families and friends. Um, yeah, so just that that value of, of those relationships. Uh, my dad really taught me just the, the relationship aspect of business. And that was reaffirmed definitely in working with our partners in Kenya, how how important that is for the longevity of any sort of partnership. That's amazing, mate. Um We've spoken a lot about sort of like, you know, what, where you, how you got to the point that you are right now, but I want to sort of switch to the future. So how do you sort of envisage sort of the next sort of five to 10 year period looking at just here? I know it's really hard to sort of look down the road another 12 months, but sort of like, what's your grand plan? <laughs> so that's always, that's interesting. We're, we're, I'm spending a lot of time with my dad just talking about that right now. Mm. So uh, a couple of years ago, we had more of a clear path, to be honest. Um, you know, with our grocery expansion and everything. And um, and now it, it's it's shifted a little bit. We're, we're actually really, uh, to be honest, we're, we're, we're really struggling with what the next opportunity is. We know that the, the main thing is we need to just continue growing the amount of tea that we can buy from Kenya because that's where the impact happens in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And always the spoons that we can carve. Yeah. So we kind of has that as a North Star. Like what can we do that will continuously um, grow that impact on the ground? Um, and where does that lead us to, for it to be sustainable? So it can't just be that. It needs to be something that actually the market is going to be willing to accept and be excited about. So for, we look at a few different channels. We always look at, you know, the bulk tea sector, whether it's the selling to, to tea shops or cafes, and we look at the grocery, and then we look at what we call gift or international business. So um, right now I'm, I'm, I'm working with a, a, a partner in Germany that we're looking at expanding into, which would be mm-hmm. really interesting. Um, we do some sales already in Europe um, and it's been kind of starting to grow um, again, more to like the boutique stores instead of the grocery stores. So that's a bit, uh, I need to find a way to save our grocery sales. <laughs> so I need to find a, 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 a I, I really need to rethink uh, and, our, and our team, we need to reconsider how we offer our grocery thing because it's just evolved quite a bit. And especially because grocery stores still are just focused on tea bags. Um, and for sure, like that's what shoppers look for in grocery stores typically is tea bags, but the tea bag industry is really expensive. Um, and if you want to offer a whole leaf tea, you have to design a specific bag. Like um, the pyramid, a, pyramid style. You got yeah. it. You know yep. what's up. Yeah. Yep. And to make those compostable is an extra, you know, mm. cost on it. Mm-hmm. And then you have all this extra packaging yeah. to, to deliver the product to the consumer. So thinking about, um, the costs that go involved with it, get involved with it to, to drive up the, the SRP in the end, the, the price that the consumer pays, um, and then uh, the the carbon footprint of all that, it's really been a struggle for me to wrap mm-hmm. my head around, does this make sense in the end? Mm-hmm. And so it would be a lot easier if we're just like, yeah, let's just go for it, not worry about those things. But, and maybe that's in the end, we'll have to be like, there's a trade-off here. You know, we're going to be able to drive our sales, drive our impact in Kenya and, and just not worry so much about offering these tea bags in this certain kind of format. Mm. Um, yeah, that's getting a little bit granular, but it's it, right now looking at the five, 10 years, it's really going to depend a lot on what we do in that in that specific channel right now. Man, it's actually really exciting. Like, how do you spend your day to day? Like, are you sort of working on the ground, sort of like with your hands in the tea right now? Or are you sort of more thinking strategically like we're discussing right now? Like, how do you sort of divide up your week and your days? 
Yeah, I, uh, as I mentioned before, I, I do a lot of uh, reading of different business books and, and mm. kind of like habit forming books. So mm -hmm. I try to really have a strict calendar around when my meetings are, uh, when I do what I call my deep work or my short work. Um, so those kind of to-do lists and the short work and that deep work, which is the strategy, which is mm. thinking about the next uh, product development, thinking about the impact in Kenya, what we can do more there. Um, so that's kind of how I separate out my week um, with those kind of chunks of time um, and and keep that balance. It's easy to get caught in, in you know, what a lot of people call the whirlwind with those emails and everything yep. and to step out and work, you know, on the business, not in the business, as they mm. say. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's tough to, to keep that discipline. Uh, and I often fall into the trap, especially when, you know, right now we're in our middle of our biggest sales season leading up to Christmas here. Mm -hmm. And so it's fun to just get more involved with the day-to-day the -day orders and everything. And it's exciting, but yep. uh, I need to think more for, for what's going to happen next, you know, next fall um 2023 and then further out from there that's awesome mate you've mentioned books a few times or the fact that you don't you know um digest quite a few um audio books what are your top five books that you would uh, recommend to everybody listening so mine are all very specific to uh cpg consumer packaged goods good. um that's uh everybody that's listening right now this is their okay. jam so this is perfect <laughs> good. yeah good uh ramping your brand is a brilliant oh book. yeah dr What's his name? Don't ask me any authors. Okay. I don't know the authors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got his book at home and I'm yet to read it. Actually, uh, and you know what? I, I feel bad, but I'll put it down in the show notes as well. Um, so that's a great one. Uh, I'm really into, I've been getting more into marketing books since I hired my first marketing person. So I want to really understand a bit more of just, you know, a lot of it instead of just going um, off of my gut. And so um, I really have been enjoying uh, Get Different, uh, yeah. it's called. Uh, different that's get different marketing and then also um the book i'm reading right now is never lose a customer again um yeah, that's another good one and then i'll be back actually is another good one for customer retention uh for marketing books um okay. and then deep work deep work is an amazing book that i just finished um just for uh setting up your like i mentioned for setting up your week with uh with how to just stay focused on on those things that are the the bigger picture uh in the end there that's cool, mate. I'll, uh, I will make a point of getting some links down in the show notes for everybody to check out all of those resources. Nice. And mate, you seem like a, a pretty relaxed and chill dude. And, you know, do you incorporate exercise? Do you incorporate meditation, psychedelics? Like what else do you incorporate into your routine? Uh, so, yeah, so I try to do, uh, if I'm, if I'm doing my day as I'm supposed to, or as I planned out, not as I'm supposed to, but what I've tried to create for myself to have a fulfilled day and, and to just feel like it's a, it's all balanced, mm. um, is, is waking up and doing, uh, a really short uh yoga routine with a bit oh, of meditation cool. at the end mm -hmm. uh and then i'm fortunate to be able to just walk to work i have a very short walk to work so that's nice um yeah. <laughs> this morning i was walking to work can i swear on this show yeah of course you can yeah okay this morning i was walking to work and I, for some reason i've been doing this since i was a kid I, I if it's not a busy sidewalk i like to close my eyes and just walk and just see how many <laughs> steps i can go before i get off the sidewalk yeah yeah, yeah. or walk into something this, this morning i was walking along close my eyes i was really enjoying you know just focusing on my breath and then i stepped in dog shit uh <laughs> Mate, it happens. And, and it was so funny because I didn't, I, it felt soft, but I still my eyes closed. So I was kept walking and then I yeah. started smelling something. And I was like, oh, man. oh okay, this is a different uh, experience now that my senses are picking up. <laughs> I was like, maybe it's just heightened because my eyes are closed. Oh, man. Anyways, that's a silly one. That happens. Um, so I don't try to step in dog shit every day, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I enjoy my walk to work and then, yeah, keep my structure of my, my day at the office um, following that kind of calendar of the to-do list and what would really make today uh, a solid day. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, it's, yes, spending time with family and my wife. I have a six-year-old daughter. Um, mm -hmm. And in the mm -hmm. evening, I try to do a, a short exercise routine. If it's not my turn to put Cleo to bed, then I do okay. a, I have a like, little workout routine I do at home. Um, so I try to keep that balance uh, between, you know, mental work and then, and then staying fit. Um, yeah as well and uh i like playing pickleball so oh pickleball is cool isn't it yeah i i was introduced to pickleball when i came to canada i'd never seen the game before yeah it's pretty silly but it's really fun dude and, it is uh, fun yeah i played yeah. it with my family at the community <laughs> center one day and it was a blast we had so much it's fun super easy to learn and it's uh yeah it's getting really popular i started playing right when covid hit because yeah. i need something to do outside and it was yeah. one of those sports that allowed you to stay or it stayed open and you can just 
and you could play with anybody. Yeah. And it's funny, like, because you're playing, you know, with 70 year olds, you're playing with 15 year olds and it doesn't matter. Everyone yeah. can, can know the game pretty, pretty fast and uh, you don't have to move too much if you don't want to. Um, so it's, yeah, anyone can really, really grab a paddle and go and play. That's cool, man. How do you um, manage to balance the fine line um, that you've got to walk between home and work life, like bringing work home? Yeah, uh, at the at the start when it was when we didn't have a little wonderful daughter, um, it it wasn't very balanced. To be honest, I would find myself often working late at home, and it it was okay at the start because mm. both my wife and I were really involved with the business. We were mm-hmm. really excited about it, um, and it was just really fun and new, and and it was just us, right? Like there wasn't that anyone else really on the team. So um, aside from my dad and my my friend Russ, um, we were just you know getting it done. As in now, I, I really do have to be a bit more strict with that, just for myself, actually. Like, like my wife is really laid back and easygoing, um, but I want to, I want to be there during those times um, for for my daughter and for for her, um, and I want to have that more of that strict, like leave, you know, leave work at home. So, mm. um, it's rare that I will be doing a lot of stuff at home. Um, I work from home sometimes, of course, during the day, but uh, in the evenings and the weekends, I'll try to try to shut down as much as possible, unless there's some time where I'm just having by myself and I feel like tackling something, then I'll go for it. Yeah. Um, but I, I do want to just stay in tune with that. Um, and also with, you know, with our small team here, just telling them, no, let's keep this balanced. I don't want anyone to get burnt out here. I want to keep everyone just excited um, to focus during the, during the, during the week. I, I actually want to eventually get to a four day work week for everybody take those Fridays off and just really just be able to, you know, just stay focused during those hours that you're working and get more done during that time and, and mm. not need to stretch things out because that's just the norm um, of, of the work environment that we, that we have. Mate. I'm so glad to hear it. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story today. I really enjoyed our conversation and um, you know what, there's so many little bits for everybody to learn, but I think everybody would have just really enjoyed our conversation and hearing your story and the impact that you've had, not any um, on everybody back in Kenya that you're affiliated with and the communities, but um, you know, everybody over here that's drinking your tea as well. And thank you so much for generously giving us all a 20% um, promo code. Uh, I encourage everybody to go to the Just Tea website and uh, utilize that promo code because I personally am really excited to try the purple tea and, and I'm sure everybody else is as well. Thanks, Hayden. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, thanks for for giving a, a voice here to to uh, Just Tea and myself and, and what we're trying to do in Kenya. It's a pleasure, mate. If anybody wanted to get in touch or ask any questions, what's the best way to go about it? Huh. So most people say LinkedIn and Lindsay is actually someone who's, who keeps telling me to get more on LinkedIn. I still haven't done it yet. I'm, I'm really bad with any social platforms. The best way to reach me is by email, paul okay. at justd.com. Uh, shoot me an email there. I will start getting more involved with LinkedIn and maybe a couple of my first, one of my first posts maybe will be this podcast. Yeah, maybe, so. yeah. share it for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool, man. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. Thank you, Hayden. So that was episode 105 with Paul Bain. Uh, What a great conversation. I took a lot away from that one. And yeah, like I said, right at the very start, I can't believe that they actually managed to, you know, have a huge influence and um, the ability to adjust the T-Act of Kenya. That's that's amazing. Um, All right. If anybody wanted to get in touch or continue the conversation, definitely head along uh, to LinkedIn. You'll find everything down in the show notes. Just click on all the links. And if you've got any questions, please feel free to shoot me an email at Hayden at thepackheavypodcast.com and I'll see you all next week for episode 106. Cheers.